Well, from day one, they never were told these are values to make you a better softball player. From day one, the minute they enter into our program and understand our core values, they understand it's all around being and reaching competitive greatness. It's all around reaching a level of professionalism. And we use that word a lot. So they understood that this isn't about just being great for the next four years, but really to build a foundation for you as a professional to make the transition from college to your first job as easy as possible. And I feel strongly about that. I hear stories to this day about how they just felt like they got a head start uh, compared to their colleagues that they were competing against in the workforce because the unwavering, I think the rigor involved with the unwavering standards, we just didn't bend them ever, even when it cost us W's. And I think that paid huge dividends for them long beyond college. Welcome to the Coaches Club Podcast, powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training. I'm your host, Luke Gromer, and every week we're bringing you conversations with coaches and leaders in sport that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader so that you and your team can reach your potential. Coaches, I'm excited to welcome Sue Inquist to the podcast. Coach Inquist is the former head coach of UCLA softball and an 11-time national champion. Coach Inquist played for UCLA and helped win their first national title as a player. Then from 1980 through 2006, she was on the coaching staff and helped the Bruins win another 10 national titles as a coach. From 1989 through 2006, she served as the co-head coach or sole head coach and amassed over 800 wins and won over 83% of her games. She has been inducted into six Hall of Fames and won multiple Coach of the Year awards. Today, we talk about sustaining success, holding unwavering standards, creating buy-in, preparing athletes for life after sport, and a lot more. Two quick things before we hop into the conversation. First, if you'd like to get a free PDF of the notes in this episode, go to transformsport.org slash podnotes, or click the link in the show details to get a copy. Second, in July, I'm launching the Coaches Club course and community. Too many coaches feel frustrated, isolated, and unsupported in their coaching. The Coaches Club is an eight-week online cohort course that will help you grow as an effective teacher and transformational leader, surrounded by other like-minded coaches. The course consists of eight weekly masterclasses covering specific coaching topics, four one-on-one calls with me, and a lot more. Ten of the twelve spots have been claimed. The cohort begins the week of July 15th, so claim your spot before they're gone. To learn more about the Coaches Club, go to transformsport.org slash coachesclub, or click the link in the show details. Or you can send me an email with questions at luke at transformsport.org. And if you'd like to reserve your spot in the cohort, go to transformsport.org slash free call or click the link in the show details to schedule a call to talk with me today and reserve your spot. Now to my conversation with former UCLA softball head coach and 11-time national champion, Sue Inquist. Enjoy the episode. I know you're not currently coaching anymore. Um, you've kind of transitioned to a different phase of life, but I would just love to start off and know why did you coach? 
Well, I never planned on getting into coaching. When I graduated from UCLA in uh, the spring, uh, in the winter quarter, I had the spring time left. And my head coach at the time asked me if she would just help, if I could help out before I walk in June. And I said, sure, I'd be more than happy to help out. And at that point, I was slated to go get my master's and uh, become a physical therapist. And so I was two weeks in. I knew this was something I wanted to do. I fell in love with the idea of helping others and watching light bulbs go on with players. And I remember telling my parents that I wasn't going to go to graduate school. My mom's like, oh, I think that's wonderful. The girls will love it. And my dad's like, who's going to pay the bills? And so I worked three jobs for the first 11 years and never really felt like I had a job because coaching ended up being my true passion. That's awesome. How that's really, really cool. Well, next question, kind of both sides of it. Uh, What was it about coaching that you found to be the most enjoyable? And on the other side, what was the most frustrating? Well, I, I sit in a unique position from a coaching perspective because when I came to UCLA, we were at the bottom of the barrel. We were the doormat. We were the team everybody wanted to play because it was a W. And in my second year, the head coach at the time, Sharon Backus came in and I mean, we didn't even have uniforms. We wore the men's track team practice t-shirts were our game uniforms. And this was right at the intersection of Title IX being enacted. And in one swift year, we got a full-time head coach. We got a budget. But what I fell in love with, fell in love with was watching somebody come in, build a framework, create really high standards, and watching a team literally come together and just improve a little bit each year. And she came in my sophomore year, and by the time I was senior, we made it to postseason. We went through regionals, went to nationals. No one scored a run off us, and we won a championship. And so I, I really loved this idea of sustaining what we were building at UCLA and this idea that we could build off of this. And so I, I think for me, the, the thing I loved about being at UCLA the most was I love the fact that we were there before we were good. And people will always tell you, you really appreciate gaining something when you've never had it versus coming into a program and you're just sustaining it, right? And then probably the hardest thing is just letting the kids go. You know, the hardest part of coaching is graduation night for me. And so um, I just live these huge extremes of completely getting in their life and then having them fly the nest. I I hated that part, but they remain in my life to this day. So it's a nice dividend. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of started to hit on one of my other questions. I would love to know what you believe uh, were the keys to sustaining that excellence over such a long period of time in the UCLA women's softball program. Well, there's a, there's a couple core pillars that, have sustained all these decades. Number one is our our standards are going to be unwavering. And 
the main two that we focused on were the volume of work that you're going to execute in a two-hour period. So the work ethic piece was extremely, there was a lot of vigor involved in the work ethic and the volume of work that we're going to do. And the second thing is the commitment to bring the energy every day, knowing that this is a failure sport. And I think that was something that a lot of people don't talk about when you think about UCLA, because on the outside, you can't help but talk about the talent that eventually started to come to UCLA. But I want to talk about what we had before we had the talent that allowed us to get good enough to compete for a championship every year. And so this idea of unwavering standards, even to the point where our standards were so high, we, we lost talent. There, there were players that didn't uphold the standards. And, and although there was only, I think, two in my 27 years that we lost, I mean, it, it cost us championships. I mean, we had to remove players a week before the World Series because if you don't uphold the standard, we, we can't have you on the team. And so um, I'm proud of that fact that that's maintained to this day are those work ethic standards. And then the other area that I feel like we did a great job of was understanding that everybody comes to UCLA on a different path. Their level of talent is different and how we customize the learning based on where they are. And from day one, if you're a student athlete in the softball program, you have a voice in what this is gonna look like because we have such a high standard. We, we need them to know this is their program and the coaches are just a formality and we'll be the guideposts for you, but this is your program. This is something that you're gonna take care of and we'll be the messengers of maybe the strategies and the technical side, but they must feel like they're the leaders on the field. We never had a captain in my 27 years. And that's because we felt everybody must captain their own ship and they must learn to take care of one another. Now, obviously, like all programs, the seniors by default knew that they had the most intel, but we had a high expectation for the freshmen that came in, so we never felt like we were rebuilding. We always felt like we were reloading. No, that's really, really good. One thing to follow up on that, you talked about that as a program, you recognized every kid was at a different level, on a different path. How did you how did you handle that when it came to just obviously the high, high level of competition that you're playing at and supporting, especially those players who weren't at the level that they needed to be to perform in games at that point in their career? I think that's a really good question. And number one, the our biggest challenge wasn't that they weren't going to work hard enough. Our biggest challenge was there's such a small margin for error once you develop a perennial national champion that they understand that. 
they understand that small margin for error and that creates a heightened sense of anxiety. So we worked really hard at celebrating when you got to UCLA. We're going to celebrate because you've sacrificed your whole life to get here. You missed the junior senior prom. You missed the spring lake trip. You never got to go to that trip in Mexico during the summer because you were playing travel ball and you were committing to your collegiate experience. And so we're going to celebrate because most of you, your career is four years away from being over. So contrary to a lot of programs that bring the freshmen in and they're like, freshmen, you know, you're going to go to the next level. You don't know what it's about. We're like, oh, no, no, you've actually perfected it. You're about a 10-year veteran. And the seniors, they're 14-year veterans. So what we did is we really encouraged them to go for it and fail a lot, fail fast, meaning be first up after recovery. We have no time for you to do the oh, poor me's because there's a small margin for error. So we never needed them to be perfect. We needed them to just go for it and then have really fast failure recovery. Yeah, that's really, really powerful. I love that, especially, I mean, I remember being a freshman in high school. I didn't play collegiate sports, but being a freshman in high school, you're so nervous. And so just to be given permission to fail and to be affirmed that, hey, you've, you've made it to this level. Obviously you're capable. I think that's, that's really, really powerful. Uh, and I think, we, I think we need to do that now more than ever because the student-athlete today doesn't get to celebrate sport as an escape like my generation or the generation that I coached. Pre-social media, sport was an outlet. And now the student-athlete has no reprieve because they have to document everything they do, you know? They have to take a picture and give the peace sign to eating a burrito and going to the park. And that can be draining on individuals where they know everything they do is for a thumbs up or, you know, another follow. And that's got to be draining. So we wanted practice. Um, when I was coaching uh, Twitter and, and Instagram had not even started. So I didn't have to worry about the social media uh, challenges, but I did have to deal with the anxiety around these student athletes coming to a program where no one has never not won. So building this record where every athlete's going to get a championship ring, that puts a lot of pressure on people. If you're jumping in as a freshman and they haven't won in three years, you're like, oh my gosh, we better get it done because every player is supposed to leave with a ring. So there's, a, there's a, a pressure internally that we had to deal with. But now today, when I talk to my former assistant coach, who's now the head coach, Kelly Inouye Perez, one of the biggest challenges, just building the self-efficacy that you are worthy and to really try to dismantle the perfectionism because it can really hinder their full potential. Yeah, absolutely. That's really powerful. Kind of shifting a little bit, when I was looking through your bio and learning a little bit about you, I, I saw that you were a co-head coach for eight seasons, correct? Yes. N not a common thing to see. Um, honestly, no. I don't know that I've ever seen it. And so I was, I was fascinated by it for this reason. I think that a lot of coaches and a lot of coaching staffs struggle to work well with each other. Um, the coach to coach relationships can, can be challenging for a lot of coaches. Uh, so would you just tell me about what it was like to be a co-head coach and how you guys were so successful sharing those responsibilities? Well, first for clarity, it was one of the first title designates 
in softball. It wasn't the first one, but it was one of the first, uh, one of the first group. But a lot of people don't know this. You know, the common thought was, oh, they're, they got to give Sue a title to keep her, right? But it had nothing to do with it. It had to do with Stanford was starting their softball program intercollegiately, and they were interested in both Sharon and I. And in order for the university to give me a raise that was significant, uh, they had to change the title. The athletic director wanted to up the salary because uh, of Stanford coming after both Sharon and I. We were never going to Stanford, but in order for her to give that significant amount of money, there had to be a title change. So that's why the title change actually occurred. Sharon was my head coach. So it was always, she was always the boss. It was never really any question, but she was the type of leader that empowered me. I was in charge of organizing practice and helping with um, set the lineups. And I just had a lot of autonomy uh, with Sharon. She was just so collaborative. It, it was really easy because of the person and leader that Sharon was. Mm, that's that's so fascinating. I like that. What what were some other things that she did that empowered you to to lead, even though you weren't necessarily the one in charge? Well, I think it, I think she was just the type of person that believed that the goal at the end of the day is for as many people to get better and to reach their best selves. And she knew the best way to do that was to scale herself. And that meant making me a head coach when she's not around, make me believe and think and give me that autonomy. So when it came to decision-making, she would defer. When it came to policies, she would ask me to, to draft it up. So every facet of the program from fundraising to uh, recruiting to setting our priorities and our standards, I really felt like I was an equal partner to her in all of it. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And and I know, you know, for me as an assistant, I love it when I feel empowered by um, my boss too. So I think that's really special. Uh, you started to to talk about one of the hardest things for you in coaching was seeing your players leave, um, which which obviously I think is a testament that you felt very connected to them. Would you just tell me a little bit about maybe some of the practical ways that as a program you were intentional about using the platform of UCLA softball to prevent, to prepare your girls for life after softball? Well, from day one, they never were told these are values to make you a better softball player from day one, the minute they enter into our program and understand our core values, they understand it's all around being and reaching competitive greatness it's all around reaching a level of professionalism. And we use that word a lot. So they understood that this isn't about just being great for the next four years, but really to build a foundation for you as a professional to make the transition from college to your first job as easy as possible. And I feel strongly about that. I hear stories to this day about how they just felt like they got a head start uh, compared to their colleagues that they were competing against in the workforce because the unwavering, I think the rigor involved with the unwavering standards, we just didn't bend them ever, even when it cost us W's. And I think that paid huge dividends 
for them long beyond college. And so from a practical sense, it, everything down to this is what UCLA softball is going to do every single day in preparation. This is what we're going to do in cleaning the clubhouse. This is what we're going to do in failure recovery. This is how we're going to stand on the foul line. Everything had a measurement component to it. And to be frank, there are some players that struggled with that because they had always been the big fish and they got to do what they want to do. And they lived more of a double standard. They didn't know it at the time. They didn't know it was a double standard that they were thriving under and then they get to UCLA and everybody's treated equally is a little bit of a head snap. And for us, it's not even about Sharon and Sue. It was about we're stewards of the program and we are a voice for the program. The program is now bigger than all of us. So you can plug and play anybody to come in and run that program. And the unique thing about our program is started in the mid seventies. Uh, we've only had three head coaches. Wow. Yeah, that's and two of the three played at UCLA. So that and and the other one started the program. So it's a there's a there's a DNA there that's very very unique compared to other programs. Yeah, that's really special. It that's is really special. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about the importance of shared language for a team. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I think what's important to discern is whenever you're for, for yourself when you're looking at programs and you're trying to discern why are they successful why are they continually in the conversation you know all teams don't win it every year but there are programs that have sustained decades and they're always in the conversation they're always in postseason but there's really two types so you have a very transactional type of program that is very military-like, military it's very vertical, and the program leaders fully understand the type of athlete they need to get into the program to sustain it. Then you've got a program that's a little bit more um, freewheeling, do it by the seat of our pants, we're wild banshees, and those coaches know what type of players that they need. And when you look at all the, and then there's the hybrid, right? A little bit of both. And we're, we're in the middle. But the one thing that people don't talk enough about is no matter how you pick your style, the one thing that they all have in common is they recruited the right type of people to buy into the program vernacular. And if you're trying to get a freewheeling, free spirit over in this, you know, vertical, it's not going to work. They won't be able to sustain it. So that's the one thing I always tell young coaches is it's not, you know, right now we're in a really transformative time from our systemic racism in this country to women now getting an equal opportunity to a law, you know, Title IX, finally getting some momentum and exposure. But what I still want people to understand is you're still going to get people that are behind that are still winning. And it's because they know what type of player to get in their program. Mm. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. What would you 
say to a high school coach who doesn't get to choose who is in their program about how to get players to buy into your culture or language? The, the first thing I would say to the coach, whether you're year one or year 20, it's not about you. And if you could wake up every day and say those exact words, it's not about me. Number two, to get everybody to have the core principles resonate with them, have them be part of developing them. We missed the boat on this. We've got coaches in a back room spending hours on core values, standards, what they look like, and the students aren't even a part of it. And the student today wants to be a part of the design mechanism. They want to be a part of the development mechanism, not just throw it at us and tell us what we're supposed to do. So probably the single most important thing is to pull them together and say, today, we're not going to practice for two and a half hours. Today, the first day of the season, we're going to review our values, both on and off the field. Perfect. They're the core values. We all know them. Great. Most people stop there. They make a poster and say, hang in there like the cat. What you need to do is you need to say, okay, those are our core values. Tell me what they look like and what they don't look like in every part of our lives, off the field, on the field, in the community, and in the classroom. And so it's a very laborious task. You make a matrix that takes two or three hours. Then page two, how are we going to enforce those? So you have self-regulation, you have peer-to-peer, -peer, so we have accountability partner systems, peer-to-peer. -peer. Then we have peer-to-leader, upperclassmen or leadership council or a captain. And then we have player-to-staff. So you have lots of systems that are overlapping around the accountability. Then layered on top of that is 911. What do we do in 911? And what does that look like? And what doesn't it look like? And so then when you have clear structure, people can plug in their responsibility and self-regulate a team and not have it just be the head coach and their two assistants, especially yeah, in high school. Yeah, that's really powerful. And, and myself and the head coach that I work with, we did part one of that this year and last year. And it's been super transformative for us as coaches and for the kids in the program and getting buy-in from the best player to the kid that's not playing very much. Um, however, hearing you say that, I think the thing that we can get better and our implementation of it is that part two and three of, of letting them really determine like, all right, when these aren't being met, here's what happens. And uh, kind of enrolling them in that process of, of you know, self-regulating and regulating as a team to uphold those standards. So I think that's yeah, and and really I think what's hard early in my career, I was very transactional. I mean, I knew you know I had a three-hour practice. I knew we were going to get twelve hundred and seventy-five swings in, and if my administrator came in and said, "Hey, I need ten minutes," I'd go, "That's three hundred and forty swings I'm giving up." I was so transactional. What would be different today is. Every single day, I'd be collaborating with the players. How is everybody doing today? Are we red, yellow, green? Oh, the majority of people are yellow? I'm going to shorten practice. Because it's about creating an environment where they're going to have the best two hours of their day. That was, for you as a coach, that's the first thing you should say when practice is over. Was that the best two hours? And I would ask my players, hey, was it the best two hours today? And sometimes they say, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was, it was not good. And so I would deal with that. So you got to be careful what you ask for. But 
I wanted them to know I was trying to do everything I could to make it the most challenging and enjoyable two hours of their day. Oh, that's awesome. That's such a good question. Yeah, I'm, I'm challenged by that. A few more questions for you. And these are questions that I've asked everyone I've interviewed to kind of try to distill some of these ideas and theme for my talk. The first would just be, what do you think in your experience and from your perspective is the biggest problem facing youth sports? And let's think high school and below. That youth sports does not create a system where we place a higher value on how to connect to children. So we put coaching on the back burner so you can just jump in, make sure you haven't killed anybody, take your fingerprint and you're a volunteer and society is saying, go to every clinic and learn the X's and O's. When in youth sport, your only job, you have one job in youth sport, one job in youth sport is to have that kid at the end of the season, raise their hand and say, when does next season start? That's it. We don't need you to be the state champion of eight numbers. And that's number one. We are not setting up our volunteer coaches to be successful. Our society overall doesn't value the important leadership component of, of youth sport. Number two, across the board, we're not putting higher accountability on the parents and their game day behavior. We're not putting parents through an onboarding process to teach them I always say to teach them game day behavior. I was so uh, I was so interested in trying to help. I built I built a a parents of performing children game day assessment so just to try to build awareness for parents on let's see how you are on game day. So we built a series, a bank of questions from the minute you get in the car to the time you get home at night to build awareness around. The minute you get in the car, they're already feeling a ramp up of anxiety. And so are you in it with them? Or are you, I always say, on game day, watch the movie. Think about the days you go to the theater when we used to go to the theater. What do we do? The first thing we do is we walk in quietly not to disrupt anything. We turn our phone off. We sit down, respectful of people, respectful of the screen. We're not yelling at the movie screen. And we ride this emotional roller coaster of the movie, being quiet, being respectful, and being focused on the screen. We need to do that on game day. They don't need technical breakdown of how to do a jump shot from the third row. You know, we, we have fallen short as adults to give the game back to the children. They no longer have an escape. So now we've overcoached them, overparented them on game day and practice day. So the child doesn't have an opportunity to build a relationship with the game. So by the time they're sixth or seventh grade, they're ready to quit because it's not their idea. It's not their game. They don't get to go and free play. They don't get to build a relationship with the game because everybody's coaching the love out of the game. And so the leadership, important connection from the volunteer coach and teaching parents how to be great sport parents. And it's not that parents are bad. It's just that we're not teaching them the appropriate behavior. And sometimes it goes sideways. Yeah. 
And I'll share just a quick story because it connects so well with what you just said and what we were talking about earlier with letting your players set the standards for your program. One of the things we did this year with our team is after they had kind of contextualized what our values looked like in their behavior across these different contexts, we had them put a list together of what it looked like for their parents at our games. And it was just really simple things like, you know, when a ref makes a bad call or when you're in the stands or after the game, like how do you want your parents to act in these situations? And then at our parent meeting, we shared that with the parents. I said, Hey, look, this is what your son said. Your son said that they wanted you guys to, to just encourage them to not yell at refs when they make a bad call. And they just said that after the game, they just want, for you to give them a pat on the back and they don't really want to talk about the game. Um, And, and it's been cool to see the parents response to it this season. And and honestly, we really haven't engaged with it much else other than just that initial meeting. But uh, there was one, one parent of one of the boys on our team that, that said to the head coach after one of the games, because the, the ninth grade girls play before us, she was like, Coach, I get. I guess the girls' parents didn't get that same talk that you guys gave us, <laughs> and it was it was funny. But I think it was really powerful, you know, for me just to experience like, okay, it's actually not it's not rocket science, but there does need to be some honest conversation and dialogue with parents, and they were really receptive to it. I know not all will be, but I think that more more will than won't. So I love that. And and we have to teach parents how to dialogue around process success and how to recognize hustle, how to recognize being a good teammate, how to recognize great failure recovery, and not just have the first question out of your mouth when they come home is, did you win? And so what happens, they grow up thinking everything they do um, on the court uh, defines their value. And that's where we start to run into trouble because they don't know how to define who they are any longer when sport is no longer part of their life. And so, I mean, even in college, we dealt with that a lot that my identity is tied to softball and that's the worst thing a parent could ever do to a child. Yeah. That's, that's so powerful. I have two final questions for you. Here's the first. Uh, What do you think are three or four things that every coach of every sport at every level, they need to be educated on these things. They need to number one, listen, to your staff and players, listen first. In 2020, listen first to what the team, the players, the environment is asking for. Number two, what you learn from that, spend all your prep time creating those conditions based on what you just learned. And then last, catch them doing it right every day. In a world where their parents and families are broken and the government is, is shady and the church is not trustworthy. It's not safe to live in this country. There's a lot of negatives. The one escape they could have for two hours a day is playing with their friends and having adults catch them doing it right every day. So they have a, a hop in their step. So for me, it would be listen first, create the conditions, and catch them doing it right each and every day. That's awesome. Last question. If you could go back in time to your first day of coaching, what advice would you give yourself that you know now that you wish you would have had then? 
before you organize practice, ask them how they're feeling and what they need. Because hmm. wow. early in my career, I just was authoritative. It was just, I know exactly what we need to do and uh, very transactional. So I would go back and say, listen first hmm. and then build it. Coaches, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. And thanks again to Coach Inquist for coming onto the show. If you'd like to get a copy of the notes from today's episode, you can go to transformsport.org slash podnotes to get a free PDF of the notes from today's episode. And if you'd like to learn more about the upcoming Coaches Club cohort, you can go to transformsport.org slash coachesclub. Or if you'd like to schedule a call to reserve your spot in the upcoming cohort, go to transformsport.org slash free call or click the link in the show details to schedule a call to talk with me and reserve your spot today. Thanks for listening to the Coaches Club podcast powered by Transform Sport, where we believe great coaches transform lives, athletes deserve great coaches, and coaches deserve great training.